This morning we're going to be looking in Deuteronomy 27 to 28, which is uh, curses and blessings. Which as you read this section it, and you keep going through your Bible, it goes from cursed to blessings to curses to way later in Matthew 5, blessed. So that's how it develops in the Bible. But for the sake of a succinct title, Curses and Blessings, Deuteronomy 27 to 28. As we get started, I'm going to go ahead and just open us in, in prayer at this point. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for this time to come and to study your word, to read of your work throughout history and how it blesses us to see things of your character, of your will, of your faithfulness, of your instruction. And you have not changed. You are still the same God, and there is much to learn from this ancient text of an ancient people under a, a covenant that we have never lived under. But there is much for us to understand about you and our lives, for we live in your creation. I pray that from this lesson, you would give us a greater fear of you, that you would help us to understand our accountability to you, that accountability has consequences, but that there is a blessing in seeking to be faithful to you, which can only be a reality if you change our hearts. And we thank you for that reality and what you have given us new hearts to love you, new hearts not only to love you, but with new abilities to be able to live for you as well. We pray that you would teach us from your word, help us to grow in our love for you and our obedience to you. Amen. Deuteronomy, as we've talked about, is the constitution of the united tribes of Israel. And in their constitution, it's also presented in a series of sermons by pastor, prophet, Moses himself. And in this covenantal constitutional document, it starts off with a historical overview explaining to Israel where they came from so that they'll understand who they are and where they're going. And as this constitution defines life under the God who has redeemed them, it begins with these general stipulations, and the, the number one general stipulation is this, to love God. And after that is explained, it moves on to some more specific things, and how do you live out loving God? And Moses begins his 10-point sermon outline, and the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words to lay out the specifics. Back in the general section, one of the things you read back in there in Deuteronomy 11 is that Moses says, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. He says a little something about the blessing and mentions that the blessing will be on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal, but he doesn't give you any of the specifics. He just kind of brings it up and he leaves it. But now that we're in the specifics section, we've gotten to the point 
in this constitutional document, Deuteronomy 27 to 28, and where we get the specifics of the blessing and the curse, which I tried to make very evident in the, the outline that I handed out to you. And I wrote the main point of this section, so I tried to summarize it. You know, what is it about? It's, this section is to explain Israel's national life and their accountability to God. You know, it's explaining to them uh, what their national life is going to be like as a nation under God. And as you'll see, some of these sections are also prophetic. It's laying out their future what will become history as well and what it means to be accountable to God. So if you join me in your copy of God's Word, we're going to be working through Deuteronomy 27 to begin with here. This is a section that's about accountability and a constitution. As it gives definitions, it's going to define accountability. In those first eight verses... You see that Moses is specifically reinforcing accountability to the leaders. If you look in verse 1, it says, And Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the entire commandment which I am commanding you today. Now that word commandment, is it singular or plural? Right. The word commandment is singular here. He's, getting, he's focused in on one particular thing, which is the commandment. What is the commandment? Yes, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's the commandment. Everything else falls under that. Uh, so you can see Moses is not viewing this as ten different things. He's not looking at the law as something that comes in three parts. It is one singular idea. It's about loving God, which is why you have that logic in the book of James that if you break one law, you're guilty of all because it's one single thing, one single idea. Now, in the instruction to these leaders here, in verse 2, you see they were to take these large stones. They were to coat them with lime and write on them the words of this law. And they would place these stones, verse 4, on Mount Ebal. Now remember, what is Mount Ebal associated with? Hint, it sounds like the word evil. The curses, right? So why are they setting these law stones that they wrote the law on on the mount that's associated with cursing. Because this is what the law teaches them. It teaches them that you are cursed. You are cursed and you're accountable to God. You're accountable to do all of these things and if you don't, you will be cursed. Which you can see that you know how your Bible goes on from here, that this is also prophetic. It's telling them, this is how things are going to go for you. But as they would cross over into the promised land, in verse 3 it says that this was a land flowing with milk 
and honey, as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, promised you. And so you see, they're in between two points right now where they're going to be looking back at the law stones that says, you're accountable to God and you're going to be cursed. But in front of you is the land that God has promised where these blessings of milk and honey, which is representative of more than that, but they're just automatic things. They're not things that you go in and establish yourself. They're not things that you earn or develop on your own. They're things that are just given to you by grace. They're given to you by promise. And they're going to get there someday. But right now, they're in that point of, they're seeing that in front of them, that if, if we're faithful in our accountability to God, then we end up there in the promised land, which the problem with them is the problem of their heart in which God would have to change their heart. He would have to be their faithfulness for them to be able to enter that land which he promised them. But behind them, they have the law stones which says you're condemned. So they're standing right in between this tension of the they deserve condemnation, but there's this promise of being able to live in this land. And the tension is, they can't keep the law. Uh, they don't have a heart that's able to do it, which gets resolved here in a chapter 30 and how that's going to work. So the issue here is, that's being pointed out is they don't have the right kind of heart. And we're seeing these sort of concepts of the vertical and horizontal in all of this. There's this vertical to God that they're accountable to God and he's going to hold them to it but there's also this horizontal element as history goes on he's telling them you are going to fail so he's teaching them, you are accountable you are accountable to me and you are going to fail now is this a positive or a negative thing this is negative it is about failure and accountability as they go on they build the stones they build an altar and they do a burnt offering and a peace offering. Who remembers the significance of burnt offering and the peace offering? So with the, the burnt offering, so none, none of these offerings actually took away any sin, but they were reminders that that can happen. There are some uh, reminders to point to the fact that God can do that. But with the, the burnt offering, how much of the thing that they burn up yeah the whole thing and so it was showing to God I want my whole life to be burnt up for you the idea of the burnt offering is total dedication now with the peace offering what the peace offering was is a fellowship meal okay so I answered my question I didn't ask you the significance on that one the significance is fellowship you have peace with God. You can sit at the, the table and eat with them and with everybody else who is uh, in, in the family. You can have a fellowship meal because you have peace with God. This thing was like a cookout, which is different than a barbecue. A barbecue is a type of food. A cookout is an event. Is this positive or negative? Positive. Fellowship meals are positive. We know this. We're going to do this today. It should be a very positive experience for you. <laughs> So the positive here, he's saying, you can be dedicated to God. This is a thing that can happen, and you can have fellowship with him. 
then this accountability as it goes on, it's not just reinforced with the leaders, but the people. You see this in verse 9. It says, Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all in Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. You like that from a preacher, right? They're like, Be quiet. Listen to me here. <laughs> you got to do that when you're like preaching to like a million people or something. You know, he might have actually preached to more people at one time than George Whitfield did. So maybe Moses has got Whitfield beat. Verse 9 says, This day you have become a people for Yahweh your God. Therefore you shall listen to the voice of Yahweh your God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. So Moses is telling them, you're, you're becoming a people who are to listen to God. This is the kind of people that you're supposed to be but also that you're not going to be, but also that God is going to make you someday by changing your heart. And he goes on to address these mountains we have talked about. In verse 12, he says, there's going to be some people who stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. So Mount Gerizim starts with a G. It's the good stuff, the good stuff. The blessings come from there. Which if you uh, look up a picture of these two mountains, they're still there in Israel, just above the valley of Shechem. They're kind of twin mountains. They look very extremely similar. It also really works really well for acoustics when you know, one group stands on this mountain and the other one stands on this one and the sound carries through and comes up and you can hear what the people are saying on the other mountain. Uh, mountains... In Israel, much smaller than mountains around here. By the way, you would probably refer to it as a hill. <laughs> this is like walking through, you know, an area in your yard, kind of. <laughs> well, on Mount Gerizim, you have those who would speak the blessings, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And for the curse, there are people who would stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. I'm going to comment just on a few of these. won't be able to work through all of them. But who would you expect to be on Mount Gerizim and to be the very first name? You know, you think of Jacob's family. Who was the guy who was born first and always wanted to be number one, but really wasn't because he was so rude. He was rude Reuben, right? He always wanted to be number one. But he, he was never number one. He ain't trying to be number one by sleeping with his father's concubine. Bad idea. Doesn't make you number one. He also tried to be the one who led the whole family and trying to rescue Joseph from slavery. But turns out he's not the real leader. Judah's the real leader. And things went bad with Reuben trying to be number one. And then rude Reuben had this wonderful idea to go explain to his father Jacob he says, well, I'm going to go and get Joseph back. And if I don't get Joseph back, you can kill all your grandchildren. Like, this is not, this, I don't know if I like this, this sort of thing. <laughs> Reuben suffered from what we might call an inferiority complex. You know, he always wanted to be recognized as number one, but he wasn't. And in trying to be number one, he just did a bunch of really dumb stuff. And this inferiority complex spread to the rest of his tribe. The rest of his tribe would be known for this same sort of characteristic, thinking that they're somebody when they're 
nobody, which you might remember these Reubenites were also involved in Korah's rebellion when they wanted to be number one, but were reminded that they're not. But instead, Reuben ends up being number one on Mount Ebal, on the curses. That's where he ends up being put. Uh, Simeon and Levi, here are these, these guys, I guess one of the things they're famous or infamous for is, you know, after their sister was mistreated, we might call it an overjustice. Right, I tricked all these guys like, oh, you, you, want, you want to marry our sisters? Well, you guys just all get circumcised, and then after that, you can marry them all you want. But while they were uh, recovering, they just went and murdered them and a whole bunch of other people in their town. Like, well, you know, that's kind of overdoing it. I mean, if you want to do something to just that one guy, that's one thing. But when you come in and you sack a whole village, that's kind of over the top. But there's also something in that in which... There's a sense in which they did something right because their father Jacob wasn't doing anything. He didn't even say anything. He didn't even say, you know, guys, this is terrible. We got to do something. But instead, you know, as Jacob the schemer was, he was just thinking, how can I get some money out of this deal? I bet I could scheme some land, maybe get some speckled goats, you know, something like this out of this whole thing. And you have Judah in here. Uh, Judah is Judah. You know, the lion comes from the line of Judah. You also have Joseph and uh, Benjamin. These are the sons of Rachel, and they're the, the technical firstborn. You know, the, this term firstborn isn't always talking about the birth order as much as the one whom God chooses to be the one that is the most important or through which a particular thing happens. Well, Mount Ebal, we talked about, you know, why these tribes, why Reuben and Gad, why the people who think they're somebody when they're nobody and always have bad ideas when they're trying to grasp for position and status. Well, what you're starting to see here is that their tribal placement is based on what their individual forefathers did. So there's this connection to, there's something that your individual forefather did that defined this whole corporate body. This would be an example of the consequences of a a father's sins visiting upon future generations. So there's that horizontal element that it ends up affecting the whole tribe for a really long time. But there's this vertical element that it's because of an individual and how their relationship to God was lived out. Uh, why they ended up on you know, each mountain and they were the way that they were wasn't so much based on what the tribe did, but what their forefather did. And so you're seeing this logical movement here in the text from the corporate to the individual There's a shift from their horizontal relationship as as a tribe to their individual relationship before God. And when it comes to, well, the purpose of why why would they say, you know, these blessings from Mount Gerizim and curses from Mount Ebal? Well, that's exactly what was communicated, blessings and curses. But Moses told them that's where you're going to hear both. But what happens is, 
as you start going through this section, verse 15, first word there is cursed. Next verse, cursed. Next verse, cursed. Next verse, cursed. So you think, wait, Moses said blessing and a curse. Why do we just keep hearing cursed, cursed, cursed? Well, in this section, that's all you hear. Uh, the blessings are mentioned later. But what's happening here is there's an emphasis being put on this word cursed here. And Moses is bringing out the significance of why, why the law stones were set on Ebal. Uh, the law is not like a testimony that if you keep it, you can earn a right relationship with God, but rather it's a testimony against you that you haven't kept God's law. Uh, you're separated from him and, and the law can't reconcile you to him. It, all it does is it condemns you. It tells you that you deserve to die and that you will. So this section of verses 15 to 26 in chapter 27 a reminder that the, the law doesn't give life. Uh, instead, it prosecutes and brings death. It's a ministry of death, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 3. So Moses is explaining where they're heading as a nation. Cursed, cursed, cursed. Why will they be cursed? Because you cannot keep this law. I put three observations in your outline there. These are three broad observations. The first being you know, the, the curses are a surprise because there's no blessings in this section. You're just, you know, if you're hearing this and you're there, you're thinking, this seems kind of harsh. Like, you know, when are you going to get to like the, the good stuff? You know, number two, these curses are geared toward the individual. You know, you read that. It says, cursed is the man, not cursed is the tribe or group of people, but the man who makes a graven image. Uh, verse 16, you know, cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. So he's focusing on you're accountable to God as an individual, and he's going to hold you to that. So you see here, these are actions not of a nation, but of an individual. And the nature of these curses is judicial. Is that the right verb? Is, is it is or are? Because curses is plural. <laughs> I got it right? Okay, all right. <laughs> Nature, yeah, that's right. The nature of these curses is judicial. Not, so the point here, it's not dealing with punishment at this point, but a person's guilt. So he's focusing, because the, these aren't punishments, you know, dishonoring your father and mother isn't a punishment, but it's something that you're guilty of. So it's focusing in on an individual guilt. You're cursed as an individual. You are guilty. I think of this in terms of Jesus's cross work. You know, Jesus didn't die merely to just take away punishment from us or, you know, specific to, to what, you know, our context, 
the punishment is going to be exile. But Jesus didn't die to just take away the punishment of exile, but then leave you in your guilty status. He died to take away the punishment uh, of exile. This is true. But the focus is also on the guilt of the individual. You know, one of the things that Christ accomplished on the cross is also changing our status. You know, we have talked about this from going from sinner to saint, from, you know, unholy to holy, from a, a people who, you know, didn't know God to, to knowing God. We have a new position in him. I think it talks about in Ephesians, it says we're holy and blameless, which, you know, you would probably not look in the mirror and describe yourself as that way. But because of what Christ has done for you, his you know, cross work is so great that it actually changes your status, your position before God on the record books of heaven. And that's actually how things are going to go for you. When you go from after being justified, being sanctified in this life, to being glorified, you will be what God has declared that you are. But in our little section here, the focus is on the status of the individual. And it's true that a punishment can be taken away by somebody else taking it or it being satisfied. But guilt can only be taken away by forgiveness or atonement or propitiation. If you look in verse... 15, I just want to point out the uh, progression here from 15 to 16. Why do you have a progression from, you know, not making uh, a molten image to dishonoring father and mother? Why put those things side by side like they were connected? This is my first hint. So not, not making a, a graven image, molten image is commandment. Two, you remember one and two were connected? Not honoring father and mother. Five, right? So it's like this concept of honoring God, you know, the vertical relationship is connected to the horizontal relationships of uh, honoring all delegated authorities. So you see that sort of logic there. And I just wanted to reinforce that. You want to look for that kind of logic in the, in the text. You know, there's a reason I keep bringing this up over and over. So when you're going through your Bible reading, you're like, ah, there it is. They're like, they, they are connected. Because, you know, you don't have cool little charts like this in your Bible. So you have to develop them in your mind to help you while you're reading. This section here of the curses uh, functions as a chiasm, which is like a sandwich, you know. Yeah, your, well, I'll say, the, you know, the A, that's your, your bread. And then you have the, you know, the B sections match, which is your mustard on each side. And the C is the meat which is that's the thing that defines the sandwich. How do you know what kind of, is, is it a turkey sandwich or a ham sandwich? Well, what's in the middle? That's how you know. That's how this section functions here. The main point is in the middle, and the main point is actually verses 20 to 20, 
3, as you look at those, it's talking about a man who lies with his father's wife, a man who lies with an animal or lies with his sister. You know, all of these are the breaking of the, the sixth commandment, you know, not committing adultery, which the positive is you're, you're supposed to be pure. There's certain things that shouldn't be mixed. So these things are placed in this particular order to show you, you know, what God is focused on. This, this is a, a, a purity sandwich, if you will, the, because what really communicated in this culture is, you know, were things pure? Were they mixed or unmixed? And God is pointing out, if you mix other things in, or if you're impure, that's how you get all of these curses. You know, that's the main thing in the midst of all of these. On either side of that, uh, you're reading, uh, you know, other commandments, you know, not moving your neighbor's boundary marker. It deals with, you know, the livelihood, you know, the, the life of your neighbor. Uh, leading a blind person astray. Again, it's an insult against life, which is to be preserved. Uh, justice due to a sojourner, orphan, and widow. That's tied to not bearing false testimony. The other side of that central section, verse 24, striking a neighbor. It's related to you shall not murder. Taking a bribe, verse 25. It's an issue of justice, which is tied to uh, the valuing of life. Verse 26, and not confirming these words, which is conclusive of all of this, is dealing with the concept of coveting. It's like because you weren't content to, to live with God's instruction, these curses will come upon you. And now, at this point, all the people are accountable to God, and they say something that we've heard ourselves, but in a different context. You look at the end of verse 26, and it says, And all the people shall say, Amen. Now, we've never done anything like that here, like just talking about how cursed you're going to be and you know, have everything. And, and all the church said, <laughs> amen. Uh, we live in the new covenant and in the blessing. And so, you know, ours is more positive than this one in particular. The next chapter, I'm not going to the next chapter yet. So, you know, think about this whole assembly here. It says, you know, all the people shall say amen. Now, this is what they're supposed to do. And you see, this is like a membership class into the nation of Israel. Membership class was not optional. Uh, they couldn't say, you know what? I don't like those curses in your membership covenant. I would like to, you know, opt out so that <laughs> those things don't happen to me. Well, accountability was required whether they wanted it or not. It didn't matter in their heart if they agreed with this covenant. God put them into it. Uh, he put them into membership under this covenant, and he was going to hold them accountable. Therefore, they were all to say amen to it. It wasn't something that they could choose to do or not. Deuteronomy 28 has blessings and curses. And so we have here in 28, 1 through 14, the, the blessings, and then 15 to 68, the curses. I think I put that in a little table chart in your notes there. And these other curses deal, you know, not with the guilt aspect, but the punishment, which is what we're going to see. And the punishment is 
exile. And so we're learning about the nature of accountability here and that uh, accountability has consequences. You know, it's not one of those things where like you have a, an accountability partner and you're telling them, well, okay, I didn't like do the eating and exercise plan that I told you I was going to do. And then you just tell them, well, just, you know, try not to do it again. <laughs> it's like, no, there has to be uh, consequences. And what we're seeing with, you know, God's concept of accountability is that it, it doesn't work like that. Uh, when, you, when you sin and you commit a sin and once you have uh, accountability to God, you get punished. Uh, there is a consequence uh, every time. You can't be exempt from it. And I think understanding the, you know, the nature of accountability as it's presented here, it, it helps us you know, in, in our context as a new covenant church to understand you know, church discipline, which by the way is a, you know, it's a mark of a, a true church. Church doesn't practice church discipline. It's not, it's not a church by biblical definition. So this is a reminder of you know, why you need to be a member of a local church which practices church discipline, which should be, you know, assumed, you know, it's not, again, it's not a church if they don't practice church discipline. But one, it, it's not optional. And two, you, you need accountability. So God has designed this, you know, the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, you know, the first instruction that he gave to the church before it ever even existed in Matthew 18 was uh, church discipline. He didn't put it out as, you know, it's optional. You can decide to be a member or not. You can decide uh, if you're subject to church discipline or not. Christ's structure for his church isn't a set of preferences for you to consider. Uh, he, you know, he's not the, the suggester of the church. He's the Lord of it. He's the master of the church, and we're accountable to do what he says. If you serve a holy God, you can't say, well, okay, I, I've, I've sinned, but... Well, whatever. He says, I never signed up for membership here anyways, so you can't, you can't discipline me. Or I would like to revoke my membership now because I don't want the accountability. And it's like, well, does God say that the church works that? Like you can, you can just choose that for yourself, that uh, the church is something you decide to be a member of or not, or does God make you a church member? And if he's made you a member of a particular body, you're accountable to it, whether you recognize it or whether uh, you like it or not. Otherwise, what you're trying to communicate is you're saying, well, I'm severed from Christ. You can't do this to me. Uh, I have no part with Christ. I'm not a part of his body. Uh, you can't do this to me, which is usually not what people are wanting to say, but they're trying to practice that while potentially claiming to still be a member of his body, though wanting to amputate themselves from the accountability that God brings with it. We need accountability and we need consequences because our God is a, a holy God and we need that to you know, curb sin in our lives and to be one to holiness when we stray from God's holiness. When you read through the curses, you, don't, you definitely don't get the sense of God saying, you know, if you do this, we'll just try better, better next time. <laughs> he says, no, if you do this, these are the consequences. And you can't opt out of them. 
the nature of accountability is that if you violate God's holiness, there will be consequences. Now, I don't know if you know accountability partners has ever been a thing around here. It was kind of a, I don't know if you want to call it a fad or whatever in the church, people talking about having an accountability partner. But it, also, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't come with consequences if the person didn't do something. They wouldn't say, you know, if, if you look at that, that garbage on your laptop again, I'm going to smash it. Uh, I mean, that might curb some behavior to be sure. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm going to check your little Covenant Eyes app. And if you, uh, you go stray on it, the computer, cell phone, we're throwing them in the slash pile. Because instead of doing that, you're going to be pruning trees and burning your devices. You know, there's consequences. You can, you know, take that idea or leave it. But instead, you know, what people do, uh, they would have, you know, more of an encourageability partner. That's not wrong to do that. And maybe they don't, you know, give you some harsh consequences and throw some of your stuff in a slash pile. But, you know, you could have a person that, you know, they're, they're trying to help you. You think like Galatians 6 here. You know, there's a, the spiritual brother and there's a weaker brother who's struggling just coming alongside to help you know, encourage, strengthen, walk with a, a brother. Yeah, I'm not saying, you know, don't do that. But you got to recognize there needs, there needs to be consequences for things as well. You think about like a business. You know, a business can't audit their finances wrongly and then tell somebody that they owe $40,000, oh, we're so, we'll just try harder next time. <laughs> no, you, you owe us $40,000. <laughs> your, your mistake isn't just a, well, let's try harder next year. It's a, there's consequences. You need to make this right, and, and you do need to try harder. That's true, but we need to settle this this year. Now, if you look in your little chart there on the, the blessings and the curses, are there more verses for blessings or more verses for curses? Now, why, why do you think there are way more curses to communicate to Israel their ominous future. So this, this is what you're going to be known for. This is what's going to be happening in your future. And so the message is clear here. He says, you know, what's being communicated is you are not going to keep the law and you are going to be cursed. As you look through the the reason I gave you this table is so you kind of see the structure there. And I have to make a judgment with my time here and my notes and <laughs> getting through all of this. Uh, I grouped all of these things into P's as best as I, I could. But what you see is there's these parallels between the two with the blessing of a place in verse 3 says you'll be blessed in the city blessed shall you be in the field there's a parallel to that over in the curses verse 16 cursed you shall be in the city and cursed you shall be in the field so then the very next thing that you see is you have you know blessing of progeny and produce and right under that there's the blessing of provision but if you look on the other side with the curses, how it develops, the provision and the progeny and produce, they get flipped. And like, well, why do they get flipped? Because you're expecting a particular order, and then the order gets broke. Uh, so, hey, that, hey, that got reversed. What's the deal with that? Well, the curses are the reversal of the blessings. 
So that's why those things are broken in that order. And again, this is a, a chiasm, you know, the A part being about the place, the B part being the progeny and produce and the provision. And then the C part, the central part, is those on proceedings and protection. And proceed, that's the best word I could come up with when it's talking about their, you know, their going in and coming in, going out, all that stuff, living their lives. I just called it proceedings. I also thought about their pedestrianing. Right? Uh, you think their proceedings is like where they go and you know, their protection from enemies or being defeated by enemies. But what if you don't have that? What if you reverse being able to, to walk with God, uh, you know, do what you want and be protected from enemies? What if you reverse that? Well, it's exile. That's the central point. It's the exile stuff. And then with the privilege and productivity, we come back to this little B section here where you have you know, their privilege of being a holy people and their productivity in the land. That gets flipped in the curses. You know, it's a re-reminder that you know, the curses are the reversals of the blessing. And then you know, the last, they go from the, the blessing of a possession as uh, you know, a holy nation and the cursing of position is you guys are going to go back to Egypt because you're just like Egypt. And I think it's important to, to note that Yahweh is the one who is doing all of this. It's not this sort of thing where he's like, you know, if, if you do this, I'll just allow these things to happen. But what it says in verse 7, he says, Yahweh will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. But that works, it works the same way on the blessing side as the cursing side. Uh, he will be the one who causes this to happen, which, one, that's terrifying, but two, that's also one of the most comforting things because if he's the one who afflicts the wound and he's the only one who can heal you, then he can do it. You see, which, you know, he's communicated to Israel multiple times, telling them, you know, I, I'm the one who's uh, made you leprous. I'm the one who's diseased you, but I'm also the one who is your healer. But the reason that I wounded you is so that I could teach you that I alone am your healer. You can't be healed by anything else. Baal can't do it for you. Canaanite religion can't do it for you. Uh, status stuff. There's nothing else that can heal you besides the one who wounded you to teach you that very lesson. The curses, as you see, they attack the things that were perhaps nearest and dearest to Israel, which is being protected from their enemies, having this special position in the world. And you see in verse 20, it's like, what are... Where did the curses come from? It says, Yahweh will send upon you the curse. Like he's actively doing this. It's not some passive thing that just happens. Uh, he says, you know, he will send upon you the curse, confusion, and rebuke, and all that you do, and all that you send forth your hand to do. So you think about it, you hear the play on words there. You know, he's sending against your ability to send. Uh, you're not going to be able to, to send forth for help. Uh, you're not going to be able to have the, the influence, the, the, the power, the prestige, the money 
nothing. All of this stuff that you value so much that you think will save you, he says, I'm going to totally strip it away from you. In 27 to 44, well, actually, I'll, make a, I'll show you a parallel here with the blessing. And the blessing in verse 13, it says, Yahweh will make you the head and not the tail. You look down verse 27, and this gets flipped around. It says, you, you will strike Yahweh will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. So you see what gets flipped around is, you know, who, what, who's Israel, who's Egypt, who's the head, who's the tail. So you act like Egypt, you get treated like Egypt. You want to go back to there, and you will, but it's because you acted like that, and you're going to be treated like that as well. In this section... You know, it goes from chapter 27 to 44. You know, why does it get so many verses? Why is it so long? Well, it's because it's so important. And you're hearing here of, you know, how, I guess you could say tragic these curses are. When you read uh, verses 30 to 34, if you scan through that, he says, you know, what, what, what will happen to you is, Things like this. You'll get married and another man will violate your wife. He says, you'll build a house and you'll not have it. You'll plant a vineyard but not use its fruits. Now, what sort of blessing language does that remind you of? What did God tell them they would have in Canaan? You'll have houses that you didn't build. And you'll eat fruit from vineyards which you didn't plant. And you see, the curses are the reversal of all of the blessings. And what she was reminded, they said, whoa, 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 whoa. You said, but we were going to go into the promised land and it was going to be like this. But he says, but if you're cursed, all that stuff gets reversed. Because they were supposed to go in and have those houses and vineyards in the promised land, which was inhabited by the Canaanites. So as I wrote in your outline, this concept of how the curses reverse the blessing. And you see, Israel's instead they're going to be treated like the Canaanites. Their houses will be taken away. Their vineyards are going to be taken away. They're, they're, they're finding out that, you know, who's really God's enemy here? It's you guys. So to, you know, synthesize this section, you know, in verses 38 to 42, you know, every curse is a reversal of the blessing showing a rejection of Israel. And 43 to 44, you hear this reversal here. You know, the sojourner who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher, but you will go down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you will not lend to him. He shall be the head and you will be the tail. And you see there's the reversal of all those things and that's the concluding thought on that particular section. Now, exile. Verses 45 to 68, that's the rest of the chapter, is all about exile. In 
45 to 46, God gives them the promise. He, he promises that exile is going to happen. You know, this isn't something like it, it might happen. He's telling them it is going to happen. And he explains the, the reason for the exile. In 47, he says, Because you did not serve Yahweh, your God, with gladness and a merry heart. Because remember, the heart is the issue. Why? He said, because of the abundance of all things. And they are too distracted with the things of the world. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies, whom Yahweh will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. So the reason that the exile would happen is because their hearts are wrong. That's the whole problem. That's the tension. Uh, they're not what they should be, and they can't be that. They can't be that unless God does something for them. And as it goes on to speak of the exile, the very first stage of the exile is siege, being sieged by other nations. Verse 49 says, Yahweh will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose tongue you shall not understand. You see, this this is kind of like the undoing of the the exodus where God brought them out on eagle's wings, but he says, but they're going to swoop down like an eagle and take you back to Egypt. So God, you know, he promises all the blessings. He explains what the curses will do. They'll reverse and reject. And it all culminates in this one great punishment, which is, the exile, which we're learning the definition of exile. What is exile? It's a punishment. And it's not focused on their guilt necessarily, but the reality is they were also guilty, but it's focused on a particular punishment. And things get so bad in this time. And if you read in verse 53, it says, when this happens, then you shall eat the offspring of your own body the flesh of your sons and of your daughters whom Yahweh your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. The man who is refined and very delicate among you shall be hostile toward his brother and toward the wife he cherishes and toward the rest of his children who remain so that he will not give even one of them any of the flesh of his children which he will eat since he has nothing else remaining during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in all your gates. And he says, what's going to happen? And this will happen when you get into reading First and Second Kings. You see all of these curses happen. You know, all of this stuff laid out here is the interpretive grid for what's going on with Israel when you get into those books that forward the narrative of Scripture. And he's saying, what's going to happen then is the, the most refined, nicest guy you can possibly think of He says things are going to be so bad that when he's eating one of his own children, he won't even share the flesh of that child with the other children, even though they need something to eat as well. But you're thinking like, this is like double super gross. He's like, this is how bad exile is going to be. And God is, you know, recognized for his faithful and lamentations when it's lamenting. The curse has actually happened. And God's faithfulness is exalted. But what you're seeing is there's two sides. He was faithful to the curse. He says, look at it, you're cannibals. That's exactly like what he said. He was faithful to the curse. 
but it was also a reminder that his mercies are new every morning. He's going to be faithful to the blessing. Things aren't going to stay this way. So, which is an element I think that gets overlooked sometimes when the you know, curses and blessings are taught on is this element of restoration. <laughs> the, the curses, blessing. That's not the last word. The last word is restoration. So you read the other chapter on, in the Bible on this, Leviticus 26. What it ends with is with the promise of restoration. You don't want to overlook that. Otherwise, you would like despair. And you're like, why do I want to keep reading any further than this? <laughs> well, why did all of these things happen? I think verse 58 answers that question. He says, uh, if you're not careful to do all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this glorious and fearsome name, Yahweh, your God. So it happened because you broke the commandment, which had to deal with loving God or fearing God, which is what that whole Shema section is about. It's about loving and fearing God. So and if you fear to do that with his glorious and fearsome name, that's the reason why these things are happening. And so all of this is circling back to the beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and showing this is going to have an effect on you guys. Verse 62, you're going to be few in number. Verse 64, scatter. That's an important theological word that's related to the, the exile. But you can think about you know, this, this family, they're the seed family. What happens when you go out and you scatter seed you you do it because you're you're trying to to build a vineyard or a garden you're you're planting in order to build up something because you want to harvest at the end but god is saying the way that i'm going to to scatter my seed throughout out the planet is exile but after i do that you're going to grow into something and then there's going to be a harvest and i'm going to gather you all in that's the restoration sort of pattern that we're looking forward to. And so you want to pay attention to those sort of words throughout Scripture, scattered and gathered. But the nature of the exile is, is focused on here. You see that in verse 68. He says, Yahweh will bring you back to Egypt in ships. By the way uh, about which I spoke to you, you will never see it again. And there you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. So the second effect, aside from being few in number, is that they would go back to Egypt. They would be starting all over again. Now as you continue through your Bible, I'm going to pull together some big concepts for you and get us to Jesus because that's important. You don't want to be left with all this exile stuff. In Hosea, it mentions uh, Israel going down in exile to Egypt. But how does you know, the prophet Hosea know about uh, Israel being in exile in Egypt? Because he knows Deuteronomy. And though they're going into exile, God promises that he's going to bring them out of Egypt, which what do we call that thing when God brings them out of Egypt? Yeah, it's, a, it's an exodus. So one of the things that you see you know, within the Old Covenant is it's, it's always displaying its weakness and 
inability. Uh, it, it can't make God's people what they need to be, but it points them to the fact that something better than the law needs to come in place for this to happen. Like We need an exodus that was bigger and better than the last one. And so they're looking forward to that happening. But as history goes on, you know, Israel has to start all over again. And you read of this sort of second Exodus language, Isaiah 40, 31. Isaiah 40 is the, you know, big famous chapter when things start getting like real good in Isaiah. It starts talking about, you know, how his people are going to be comforted after judgment. Now listen for the Exodus language in Isaiah 40, 31. He says, Yet those who hope in Yahweh will gain new power. They will mount up with wings like eagles. There's our uh, Bible cross-referencing system coming up and the language that's being used. It's coming from Exodus 19, 4, where it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, Isaiah is saying, remember that, remember that exodus. But he's saying, in the future, they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. There's a better exodus than even that one that's going to come in the future. So exile is like starting all over in Egypt, but not to despair and stay there forever, but to look forward for another exodus, which is greater than the former. So why is it significant that the Messiah, Jesus, comes out of Egypt? Now you think about this in Matthew, it talks about God's son coming out of Egypt. Well, what's interesting there in Matthew is that he doesn't quote the book of Exodus, which says that, but he quotes specifically Hosea, where in Hosea 11.1 1, it says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. He's talking about this nation, Israel, you know, he's, he loved him, and he calls him out of Egypt. But when you read the reference to that verse in Matthew 2, it says, So Joseph got up and he took the child, that's Jesus, and his mother, while it was still night and departed for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. It's like, well, wait, hold on. Back in Hosea, he was talking about the nation of Israel, and right here, he's talking about the Son of God. Well, what's the significance of that? Well, it's the significance of the head of the tribe that represents everybody else. It's that sort of concept. It's the one who represents the many. He's everything that they should be in their place and for them. He, Jesus' exodus will become the people's exodus, which, by the way, that, that uh, Greek word exodus, when uh, uh, Jesus is there in his transfiguration, he's talking with Moses and Elijah about his departure. The, the Greek word there is exodus, which means exodus. But that's what he was talking about. He was talking about this greater exodus, which part one is the cross, and the final phase of it is the second coming. Well, I want to just draw out here in conclusion, you know, to bring out this concept of the one who represents the many, the, the king. You see in Deuteronomy 28, 36, it says, when they go into exile, it says, Yahweh will lead you and your king. So you think about that. 
he foretells the collapse of what's going to be known as the Davidic dynasty. But, you know, the last king in that goes into exile and the thing goes from being a temple to a tent to a collapsed tent is what happens with it. And with the Davidic dynasty being collapsed and all of the curses having come, you're left with, man, we've, we've read Kings. All the curses have happened. But when do they get broken? When do the blessings come? When does a, another Davidic king show up? Why don't you keep reading Matthew and you start off that genealogy like, the son of David. Like, well, why does he want to put, like, that's out of order to just put David right here at the very top. And he's saying, the Davidic king is here. The, the temple's back up. It's not a tent, it's a temple. And it's this guy. And then that guy who is God and is a prophet like Moses, he goes up on a mountain and you can just get all the, the anticipation of this. Like, you know exactly where it's going. It's like, what is he going to say? <laughs> I'll tell you what he doesn't say. He doesn't say cursed. He doesn't say it even one time. He says, blessed, blessed, blessed. I'll leave you with that. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you for all the blessings that are in you and only in you the salvation we need, the sanctification we need, the glorification that we could only have in you. Thank you for the certain hope that is in you. Pray that we would be in awe of the things that we have heard here and they wouldn't uh, leave us quickly as we close this lesson or be forgotten about throughout the week. But you would bring us to stop and to ponder the realities of your faithfulness of your goodness of what you're, you have been doing throughout history, what you are doing with us, and the great future that we have ahead of us in even yet a, a greater exodus to come, greater than even the one of the past exodus where just a people was moved from one place to another, but where people of transformed hearts are brought into uh, new heavens and a new earth. We wait for we long for that day. Pray that you would increase our hope, increase our love for you, increase our worship to you, our faithfulness and obedience and resting in you. Amen.